Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Like all of you, I do appreciate so much having our sanctuary choir back singing with us and just helping uh, lift our hearts and minds as we worship. So thank you so much to them for the effort they give in serving us uh, every Sunday morning. Well, I've mentioned here many times over the years that I grew up as a PK, a preacher's kid. Um, does that look like a family going to church in the 50s or what? It's <laughs> my mom and dad and me at about two or three years old uh, coming out of church one Sunday morning. Uh, so I grew up in the church, and the, the churches my dad served were uh, conservative evangelical churches, uh, way before the word evangelical was sort of complicated, as it is now in our culture. Churches where the Bible was taught, and Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life. But church also came with a certain number of expectations, sort of unwritten rules. For example, uh, smoking and drinking, about alcohol of any kind, were very much frowned upon. Uh, we didn't go to movies. I think the first movie we were allowed to see as kids was Born Free, because it was about lions, not people. Uh, didn't go to movies. We didn't play cards. The only cards my parents played was Rook. Remember that? That was the Christian card game you were allowed to play. I'm not sure why it was any different, but it was. Um, and men went to church wearing coats and ties. And women wore dresses. We dressed up to go to church. Uh, that's my brother and me. Uh, before church one Sunday, a long time ago. We don't look terribly happy. Um, so even though the Bible says in 1 Samuel that man looks upon the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart, we were pretty sure my parents thought God paid attention if we wore ties. So that's what we did. Um, when I was about 13, 14 years old, though, uh, this would have been about 1969 or 70, I was in church one Sunday morning. Our church was in New York at that time. And um, uh, I remember it was right before the service started, and a murmur sort of started uh, around us, sort of behind where we were sitting. And it kind of grew louder, and then I, I turned to look and see what everybody was sort of paying attention to. And there was a youngish man, maybe early 20s, walking down the aisle into church. Long, uh, sort of dirty blonde, scraggly hair hanging halfway down his back, big bushy beard covering his face, and he was wearing kind of a dirty work-looking t-shirt, raggedy jeans, and he was barefoot. I thought for a minute Jesus had come to church that morning, but he, he, was, he was walking in, um, and I remember thinking to myself, um, wow, uh, he, this guy doesn't even know how to dress to come to church. He, he's, he doesn't know what to do. Uh, now, this was the, the, sort of the tail end of the hippie movement. What had happened was this young man was kind of out of that movement, and our church had been founded by uh, Norwegian immigrants, many of whom were builders, and he was a laborer for one of the, the Christian Norwegian builders in our congregation who had invited him to come to church from time, and he came, and he just came like he was, barefoot, long hair, beard and all, but what I noticed was, as he walked in, people sort of noticed, but then up front in the pews, people made room for him, and he just sat down right, right up here in front, and that young man came week after week, and eventually came to faith in Jesus and was with us for a year or two before moving on, and every week he came the same way. Dirty t-shirt, raggedy jeans, and barefoot. And that little church made room for that young man. 
And I've always thought that I learned as much about the gospel and about the church from that little story as almost anything else while I was growing up. Now we're continuing our series in the Gospel of Mark called Following the King. And last week we were in Mark chapter 6, the story of Jesus walking on the water, how he sent his disciples out into the wind at night uh, uh, alone, and then how he saw them in their darkness and struggle and then came to them to reveal who he was. Beautiful story. And Mark 6 then ends with Jesus going into the region of Gennesaret, which is on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, and there he just heals many, many people, and that leads us to chapter 7, where we are today. So I'm going to pick it up at the beginning of Mark chapter 7, and we're going to read the first 20 verses in this chapter. Mark writes, Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, now let me stop there because you might not notice this, this is significant. Now, because Jesus is up in the northern area, he's up in the region of the Sea of Galilee, which is some 50 or 60 miles from Jerusalem, a significant a bit of distance in that day, the ancient world. Uh, the Pharisees had already begun to conspire against him to try to um, uh, join with the Herodians and coming up with some reason to destroy Jesus. This time, they have scribes from Jerusalem with them. That means these are religious leaders who've come all the way from Jerusalem seeking to meet with Jesus, seeking to sort of spy on him and gather evidence against them. So this is hinting that something really big is coming down the road. Verse 2, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. That's significant. We'll come back to it. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes ask him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Now we've already seen in uh, the first six chapters, uh, Jesus being confronted on at least three different occasions by the religious leaders. Uh, when his disciples were plucking grain on the Sabbath, remember that? And then when Jesus healed the man with a withered hand in the synagogue on a Sabbath, and also when he forgave the sins of the man who was paralyzed. They said, who, who can forgive sins but God alone? So he's been confronted before, and this is yet another confrontation. Why do your disciples not wash their hands properly? Verse 6, And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to, to the tradition of men. So, you see here what's happening. The religious authorities are confronting Jesus about something his disciples are doing wrong. And notice, Jesus does not only not apologize for his disciples, he actually um, doubles down with his own accusation against his accusers. So we can assume that just this escalates the whole situation. And then he gives an illustration of what he's talking about. Verse 9. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother. One of the Ten Commandments. Right? Recognize that from Exodus chapter 20. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is Corban that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. Now, uh, this uh, illustration comes from a rather 
obscure ancient Jewish tradition. Uh, and we can miss it, so let me explain. Jesus says, instead of obeying the commandment of God, honor your father and mother, you claim something called Corban. Now, what was Corban? Uh, Corban was a form of uh, uh, deferred giving in that time. A person could declare a portion of his wealth uh, to belong to God, to be Corban, that it was going to be given to God as, a, as an offering, and then could tell his aging parents, well, there's really nothing that I can do for you, mom and dad, because I've already promised it all to God. And the problem was, in practice, a lot of that money never made it to the offering place in the temple. They would promise it, not give it to their parents, not support their parents, and then keep a lot of it for themselves. So they were using this tradition of Corban, this religious rule, to actually avoid obeying the commandment of God. Jesus is saying, you're accusing my followers of not keeping your religious rules, that rules that are man-made, by the way, the tradition of the elders, uh, not the commandments of God, then you use your own religious rules to disobey the very commandment of God. You are hypocrites, he says. Here I think Jesus is getting at what I'm going to call this morning the problem of religion. The problem of religion. Now I'm going to define religion for you, and I want you to make sure you notice that I'm not defining Christianity. I'm not defining our Christian faith. I'm defining religion sort of technically, okay? Religion is belief in a God or gods and the activities that are connected with this belief, usually involving devotional or ritual observances, often containing moral codes governing the conduct of human affairs. Simply put, religion is a set of beliefs plus a set of practices, rituals, and codes. For lack of a better word, rules. Religion is certain beliefs and then rules. Let me give you an illustration. Uh, here at Chapel Street, I hope that you all know that we believe certain things to be true. We believe the Bible is God's Word. We believe Jesus is the Son of God. We believe that only by faith in His death and resurrection can we have the hope of eternal life. But let's say we add to those beliefs certain practices or rules. Let's say in order to worship here at Chapel Street, South Street campus, you have to obey the following. We're going to call these the Ten Commandments of South Street Worship. First, you have to begin to prepare for worship on Saturday. On Saturday morning, you have to have a breakfast of waffles and peanut butter. That's my favorite breakfast, so that's the rule. Waffles and peanut butter, Saturday morning. Then you have to fast the rest of the day, drinking only purified water from all the preferred uh, approved vendors. At some point Saturday, uh, you need to get a haircut. All you guys need to have a haircut, and all the women have to go to the beauty parlor so you look respectable on Sunday morning when you come to church. Uh, then you have to take your car through a car wash so your car is clean enough for the church parking lot. In the evening, you must take a shower with the approved soap, clip your fingernails and your toenails, and abstain from watching any TV so you can focus for two hours on studying and praying over the passages you're going to preach about the next morning. Then on Sunday morning, you must shower again using that same approved soap. Men then must wear coats and ties, and women must wear dresses to come to church and closed-toed shoes. Those dressed any other way will be met at the door by the ushers and asked to return to their homes and watch the service online. And just by looking out there, a whole lot of you would be sent home. Kenton, <laughs> home. No tie. Okay? Yeah, a lot of you would be sent home. 
Now, that sounds kind of ridiculous to us, but that's a little bit like what's going on here. Verse 2. They saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And when the Pharisees and scribes ask him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? I want to point out three problems with religion that I think Jesus is getting at here. First, the first problem of religion is that it replaces relationship with God with rules. Replaces relationship with rules. For example, many of us, I would guess, uh, grew up in churches where our faith as Christians uh, was defined mostly by what we did not do. I went through some of this before. We didn't smoke, we didn't drink, we didn't swear, we didn't go to movies, we didn't play cards. We grew up knowing, knowing the rules. I grew up knowing the rules. And in many ways, rules are good. But rules are not the same thing as relationship. And Jesus is saying that this is a problem. Secondly, he's saying the problem of religion is that it creates legalism. If it's all about rules, then legalism becomes a temptation. And legalism is that which creates a kind of behavioral checklist that can be used to justify oneself. I've done this, this, and this, therefore I'm good. And allows us to judge others who have not done this, this, or this. And that's, what, that's what's going on in the story we look at today. The Pharisees and scribes are making an accusation. Your disciples are not following the rules. By insinuation, you are not teaching them properly. You are not teaching them proper piety before a holy God. Now we need to notice that the specific rule being talked about here is not one of the Ten Commandments. It's not one of the laws God gave to his people. Rather, it's from what's called the tradition of the elders. That's a kind of oral tradition that developed around the law of God to further explain it for his people. It was developed among the rabbis and the religious leaders over decades and even centuries and eventually came to be seen as carrying the same authority as the commands and law of God. But these were only man-made traditions. These traditions eventually became sort of outward indicators of devotion to God, like wearing a tie. I wore a tie this morning on purpose so I could look holier than the rest of you. <laughs> right? That's what this was about. The hand-washing we talked about here was just purely ritualistic. It had nothing to do with being clean enough. They didn't know anything about germs then. It was like a little uh, like eggshell full of water they dripped on their hands in, in, to make a show of it before others. I thought of this this week, um, thinking about this ritual washing. You know when the COVID rules first came out? You know, stay six feet apart, um, wear a mask, and wash your hands for how long? 20 seconds, right? It's a long time to wash your hands, at least in those when it first started. I remember being a, in a public place somewhere, maybe in a restaurant, and going to wash my hands, you know, which I'm, I'm, I'm usually not a very um, thorough hand washer, but turn on the water, you know, I'm done, right? And I remember going, starting to grab the towel, and looking over, there's somebody else in, in the restroom. And I did it not because I wanted to be clean, but because I was being watched, right? That's what's going on here. Religious rules tend to create legalism as a way to judge others 
and a way to justify oneself. And the third problem with religion is that it breeds hypocrisy. Religion and rules breed hypocrisy. A hypocrite is one who pretends, one who is just acting. In this case, one who pretends to be righteous, holy, and devout, when in reality, they are far from that. When I was in college, and I've told parts of this story before, my dad accepted a call to, uh, to pastor a small church uh, outside of Orlando, Florida. And uh, he inherited, as he took that pastoral role, a group of elders, uh, at least in that church tradition, they were called elders or leaders. And they had served uh, under the former pastor. And so one of them was a man named uh, Mr. Iker, Harold Iker. Uh, who had served as an elder for like 30 or 40 years, been at that church forever. And fairly early on, my father realized that Mr. Iker probably uh, was going to be a problem and probably shouldn't be in spiritual leadership in the church. And one of the main reasons was how he prayed, oddly enough. Uh, that church had a prayer meeting every Wednesday night uh, for like an hour. Mr. Iker was always there because he kept the rules. He was always at prayer meeting, and he always prayed, usually waiting till toward the end, of the prayer meeting, and he always got down on his knees when everybody else set up. He made a big. He made, he got down on his knees to pray, and he always prayed about his wife. His wife didn't come to church with him, and didn't take long to figure out why. Because this is how he prayed: something like this, "Oh Lord, you know, Lord, I'm here on my knees, humbly beseeching you about my wife, Lord. You know her. You know how I've suffered all these years." You know how cold-hearted she can be? You know how mean-spirited? I mean, it would go on and on like that, uh, basically confessing all of his wife's sins. And I'm a <laughs> bit ashamed to say that my brother and I, when we were home from college, we would go to Wednesday night prayer meeting just to hear Mr. Iker <laughs> pray about his wife. Well, the time came for, him to, for the elders to be nominated again and put to a vote for the congregation. My dad just left his name off the list. And after that vote, when he realized he wasn't going to be an elder, he stormed into my dad's office on that Sunday morning, pounding on his desk. I want to know why I'm not an elder. I want to know. I deserve it. I've always been an elder here. And my dad said, Harold, sit down for a minute. He said, I didn't nominate you because you're one of the most self-righteous, conceited men I've ever known, and you don't deserve to be an elder. Okay, I'm going to come back to Mr. Eicher's story in just a little bit. Verse 6, and he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites... As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Jesus calls his accusers hypocrites, pretenders, and that's a serious thing to say, because he knows they are judging others by their man-made traditions while justifying themselves, even though they disobey the very commands of God. He says, you are nothing but hypocrites. And in this sense, Mr. Iker was a hypocrite. He pretended to be deeply spiritual. He pretended to be a man of prayer. But in reality, his heart was far from God. And what Jesus is saying here, I think, is that it's possible, listen, it's possible to attend church. It's possible to give our money. It's possible to sing the songs. It's possible even to pray devout-sounding prayers, yet to have a heart that's far from God. That's what he's saying. It's possible to keep all the religious rules and have a heart that's far from God because religious rules are not the same thing as a relationship with God. And this is the problem with religious, Jesus says, because keeping the rules does not necessarily address the problem of the heart. The second part we see here is the problem 
of the heart. Back to our Chapel Street Ten Commandments for a minute. Let's say you kept all those requirements just perfectly. You shower twice, you fast, you pray, you eat waffles and peanut butter, you get a haircut, you wash your car, everything that's required, put on your nice tie, your nice dress, your clothes, toes, shoes, and you drive to church, and as you get to the parking lot in your well-washed car, you see another family getting out of their car, and their car is much nicer than your car, and you envy that car. You envy. And in that moment, everything you've done to prepare, all the rules that you've kept to worship is completely undone, and everything you've done comes to nothing and means nothing because your heart is the real problem. Why? Because keeping rules doesn't necessarily change the heart. Verse 14, And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered into the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Jesus is quite graphic here. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, for they defile a person. So Jesus switches gears here just a bit here. Uh, He's no longer talking about the ritual washing of hands. He's talking about food. Now, there's some debate here among scholars about what Jesus is actually talking about. He could be saying that because um, they didn't wash their hands, uh, they are touching food, then thereby making the food defiled because their hands are defiled. Or he may actually ta- be talking about food items that have been forbidden in God's law to his ancient people. For example, in Leviticus chapter 11, there's a long list of dietary laws, that is, animals that could be used for food and those that were regarded as unclean. If I read just a few verses, Leviticus 11 The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Say to the Israelites, Of all the animals that live on land, these are the ones you may eat. You may eat any animal that has a divided hoof and that chews the cud. How many knew that was in the Bible? Okay. With regard to seafood, they could eat anything with fins and scales, which uh, ruled out shellfish. The list continued to birds and insects and reptiles, clean and unclean. Now, many scholars now believe that God gave these food laws primarily to distinguish his people, the Israelites, as his chosen people, to distinguish them from all the other people groups in the world. Others think there might have been some health concerns uh, with these uh, laws as well. But in any case, Jesus now says it's not uh, that what people eat, that what enters the body from outside is not what defiles. Now, we need to try to see how revolutionary this teaching was. He's talking to people who lived their whole lives assuming that religion was about rules, that it was about outside in, that keeping the rules was how one became righteous before God. It'd be like you keeping the Ten Commandments of South Street worship for your whole life. Then one Sunday, I stand up here and say, nope. You don't have to do all that stuff anymore. That's not what God wants most. He doesn't want you to eat waffles and peanut butter. He doesn't want you to get a haircut. He wants your heart. How disorienting would that be? He's teaching that genuine relationship with God is inside out. Jesus is is saying it's not what comes into a person that defiles them. It's what comes out of the person. Now, 
<coughs> excuse me, Jesus is not saying that all religious rules are wrong or are to be disregarded. He's not saying that we are to approach God frivolously and without preparation. Jesus would have agreed 100% with the scribes and Pharisees that God is holy, and we are to approach him with reverence and awe. Jesus is not saying that we can put anything into our bodies, and it's fine with him. Because we know from the rest of Scripture, from the rest of the Bible, that there are things that come into us from the outside that do defile. Pornography, for example or illicit drugs. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking specifically about food laws and ritual washing. Here's what he's saying. The problem is not how we wash our hands or how we dress. The problem is not what we eat. The problem is the condition of our hearts. And for three reasons. First, the heart is where sin begins, he's saying. Verse 20, and he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. Most of those, if you pay attention, come straight from the Ten Commandments. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. So he's teaching that sin does not begin with external rituals like washing of hands or eating certain foods, it begins in the heart. Way back in Genesis chapter 6, right before God sends the flood on humankind, we read, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. In the prophet Jeremiah, we read, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Let me stop there just for a minute. I want you to see again how revolutionary this is, how countercultural this is, not just in the ancient world, but in our world today. How often do we hear things like, just follow your heart? If you just follow your heart, you can't go wrong. Be true to yourself. Jesus says, no, no, your heart is not naturally good. Your heart cannot be trusted. Your heart is the problem countercultural. It's revolutionary. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God nor give thanks to him, but they came futile, became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. The, hearts, the heart is where sin begins. Secondly, the heart is where repentance happens. As we started the series, uh, way back in chapter 1 in Mark, as we heard in the little bumper before the sermon started, Jesus began his very ministry by calling people to the gospel of repentance, Mark chapter 1. Now, after John was arrested, that's the Baptist, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. To repent means to acknowledge one's own sin, to turn from it and turn toward to the grace, forgiveness, and cleansing that only God can offer. In the very first sermon, Peter preached after the resurrection of Jesus, Acts chapter 3, he says, Repent, therefore, repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. In the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel, we read, And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. Notice, Notice the juxtaposition of spirit and obedience. 
Repentance leads to God giving us a new heart and a new spirit, and it's the presence and power of the Spirit's work within us that produces then obedience. The heart is where repentance happens. And then thirdly, the heart is where Jesus wants to dwell. It's where God wants to dwell. In Ephesians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul writes, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, that's heart, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Again, the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God, is not keep the rules so that God will one day be pleased with you. That's not the gospel. That's what most people in our culture believe. If I could just be good enough, if I do more good than bad in my life, then God's going to be happy with that. That's not the gospel. That's religion. It's not the gospel. The gospel is repent from your sins, receive the free gift of God's salvation through his grace, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit who comes so that Jesus takes up residence in our hearts and lives his life in and through us. That's the power of the gospel. The gospel gets at the problem of the heart because it works inside out. Now think about this. Almost everything in our world works outside in. Religion works outside in. Keep all the external rules and you're going to be good enough for God. Politics is outside in. Politicians and government create laws and policies designed to maintain order and protect prosperity. But no amount of laws and policies can change the human heart. We see that every day. Education is outside in. Popular culture is outside in. Only the gospel is inside out. That's why Jesus said you must be born again. Paul describes the power of the gospel like this, Romans chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. No more condemnation. Why? Because you kept the rules perfectly? No. Because Jesus sets us free from the law that condemns. We no longer live under the burden of religious requirements. Jesus has fulfilled in himself all the requirements of God, and therefore, Jesus sets us free from the law of sin and death. That's the gospel. And that's the key to understanding the kingdom Jesus is talking about. Jesus is king, Mark says, over and over again. His kingdom begins not with the rules of religion or the policies of politics, but rather in the heart of every single person who repents. That's where his kingdom begins. I told you I was going to finish the story of Mr. Iker. Well, that day, he was angry. Pounded on my father's desk, stormed out of his office, red-faced and angry. My father didn't know if he'd ever see him again. But to that man's credit, a couple of weeks later, he called my dad and set up an appointment. And he came into my dad's office, a different man, my dad says. Humble, repentant, admitted that he had become spiritually proud over the course of his life, admitted he'd been arrogant and judgmental, admitted even that he had failed to love his wife in a way that honored God, admitted he had been a hypocrite. He, he was a changed man because... Not because he tried harder to keep all the rules, but rather because he surrendered. He surrendered his heart to the king, and Jesus began to change him from the inside 
out. Now, the story of Mr. Iker is a sad story in many ways, but it's also a hopeful story because it's never too late to repent from sin. It's never too late to turn from hypocrisy. It's never too late to be set free from the burden of religious rules. It's never too late to surrender your heart to the king. That's the gospel. That's the good news. Will you bow with me in prayer? Lord, today we thank you today for your word. We thank you for teaching us today that what you want most of, from us is not our religious behavior, although some of that is very good, but it's not what you want most. What you care most about is not our religious traditions, although some of those are very good. What you want to change most in us is not our clothes or our appearance, but our hearts. So help us by your Spirit to repent from any self-righteousness, to turn from any hypocrisy or any tendency to judge others. Set us free from the burden of religious rules. Set us free from the burden of sin. Make your home in our hearts that we might serve you and your kingdom with both grace and joy. And it's your name that we pray.